Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Unhedged. I'm your host, Frank Trois, and I'm really looking forward to this week's broadcast. Each week, we try to present you with the most diverse group of panelists and speakers that one can find anywhere. These range from theologians to portfolio managers, hedge fund managers, politicians, you name it. If they've written a book, we're going to have them on air talking about it. And by the way, we're not going to follow a scripted, organized discussion, but rather have a free-form discussion so that we can talk about the things that are top of mind, and more importantly, ask the questions that you would probably have asked yourself. Feel free to recommend the show to friends and colleagues, and with that, let's get on with this week's edition of Unhedged. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to sohocap.com unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Unhedged. I'm your host, Frank Trois from beautiful Singapore. It's 7 a.m. in the morning, and welcome today to Dimitri Andalakis, one of the leading minds and thinkers regarding quantum computing here in Asia Pacific. Dimitri, good morning. Thank you for being here with us today. Good morning, Frank. It's, uh, it's great to, to be here with you. I'll bet quite early for a physics Saturday morning, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's maybe you guys in finance. That's why you, you work very hard, obviously. Great to be here. Well, thank you, and, and, and glad to share a cup of coffee with you this morning. And you know what, you know what I'd, I'd like to do? You and I have had the opportunity we, we've, to get to know one another over the past year and a half, but uh, at a high level, what would be the easiest way for our listeners to understand why you're here in Asia Pacific and some of the projects you're working on, uh, both for the university systems and also some of the things that you've been doing in the private sector? So before we jump deep into quantum computing, what have you been up to here in Asia? Yeah, so I am a professor in the National University of Singapore here. Basically, I came to give you a kind of a fast forward uh, story, professional. Um, uh, my professional life is as follows. I did my PhD in um, Imperial College in London roughly 15 years ago. Um, then I was a, a professor in Cambridge uh, for six years. Um, then basically moved to Singapore roughly um, 10 years ago to work in the Center for Quantum Technologies in National University of Singapore. This is a basic research center, um, kind of like a national center focused on quantum technologies, uh, mostly upstream research. And, 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 you know, that was also the field at that time, how, how basically to understand the laws of how to apply the laws of quantum physics to build new uh, quantum devices and quantum computers, including quantum communication and quantum sensors, and we're doing uh, all the range. And at the same time, um, the last few years, I've also been uh, a little bit exploring how to uh, explain quantum computing to uh, the broader world, um, both as a, as a university teacher and also as a consultant, in a sense. I've, I've been participating in outreach events, I've been uh, consulting, um, you know, financial industry as well, and a few other industries on 
potential use cases of quantum computing at their, um, at their sectors. And you and I have talked a lot about this, but sometimes our, our listeners, I still get the question as to, you know, Frank, why did you move to Singapore and what, what is Singapore doing that's different? So between you and I, me coming from the States, you coming from Europe, what, what have you seen about Singapore relative to its role here in the region? And why are you doing quantum computing here versus some of the other locations that you could have gone to? Singapore is great. One line in the sense that great to do science here. It's, um, you know, I brought my family also. I was a couple of years back and forth, but in the last six, seven years, my family joined. It's a safe country. It's very organized. The university is a very high uh, you know, top maths to maths to Ivy League universities, I would say. Um, I mean, they are smaller and uh, we have fewer options, but, uh, you know, the, uh, the scientific and research environment is excellent. And, and I speak that, you know, also comparable to my previous places, Cambridge and Imperial, uh, the experience. I've also kind of been a visiting professor in the U.S. in a few places. It's a great place to do to do science and basic science. Um, so that's it. And it has very good weather too, better than the British weather. So, <laughs> yeah. And, it, and to your point, it's always been interesting here, and it's somewhat uh, fun with my American colleagues as I explain to them how invested Singapore is in in these technologies and and infrastructure and and smart cities so it's it's surreal for folks to see how involved in a constructive way the singapore you know the singaporean government is in, in projects like this indeed indeed is um, they have a clear vision and they implement it i mean their own singapore way and that's that is fine uh, but it works and it 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 it, it makes uh, makes scientific and work life uh, much easier compared to other places, and uh, that's that's. I think this is a great strength, and that's why I mean that we can see it around us, and probably the same holds for business. From from what I see, the most recent years that I've interacted with your sector, it's, it's a great place to do business as well. And you know, you start a company within you know less than a day, eh, or if, or you can you can interact with people from very different backgrounds very easily, and and things work. This is very, very important. So let's talk a little bit strategically about quantum computing. And as I we were saying ahead of the broadcast and ahead of recording, let's just assume for the sake of ease that my mother is is one of the listeners and has absolutely no idea what quantum computing is, let alone even how to turn on her own computer uh, that she's using. So how do we distinguish quantum computing today, and I'll make fun of myself, I'm, I'm still regrettably in a position where I can talk about the old assembly cards that we mm. used to, the old punch cards that we used to use for assembler. And yeah. how, so coming from a world of, of zeros and ones and a world where Moore's law was always talking about these advancements in speed, why, why, what is quantum computing and why is it so significant relative to what it presents for the future? This is great. If you have experienced the, the punch cards, you are part of your, you, you have half of the computing history in your experience, Brian. This is, I'm slightly, uh, maybe a little bit younger than you. I didn't experience that, but I remember the first apples and the first uh, uh, Macintoshes and so on. So quantum computing basically is, is completely different. I mean, the, the punch card, card computers and even the 
a vacuum tube computers of the of the 1940s, ENIAC, the 1946, something like a, a disk of a machine, 40 times, 10,000 lamps. You could do only 500 flops, but that's okay. Are as far as uh, they're all basically very similar to each other. Let me put it this way: all classical computers, all the computers from from those early computers you're talking about, all the way to the Babylonian time, 2,000 years ago, and the Greek times, the abacus. You know the abacus? You had I mean, mm -hmm. everybody had one in kindergarten, right? Um, work on the same process in the same kind of logic. You have bits and you add them and you subtract them you have zero and ones you move them around in the you know in the lines in the abacus so the abacus and in the most developed latest version of a classical supercomputer the ibm summit is sitting somewhere in the national lab in in the us and the chinese also have built one recently called taihu light they are very similar machines it's just that the supercomputers of today are just billions of times or trillions of times faster in doing exactly the same thing, calculating one by one and so on. Quantum, basically something different. It's completely, it's impossible to explain in, we're using classical kind of analogs, but one could try and say that it's based on this exotic laws of quantum physics in being two places at the same time or multiple places at the same time. That's called quantum superposition and quantum entanglement. Uh, that allows you to do fundamentally, I would kind of dare to say the word parallel processing. It's not exactly parallel, but it is maybe. You can process multiple inputs at the same time. You can look for solutions um, multiple ways at the same time. That gives you a huge edge. It gives you like a, you know, it's first in human history that we have that kind of approach in this, not only in computing, but in mathematics and in logic. So you could solve, just to give you an example, if you have two quantum bits, they can be 0, 0 classically, or 0, 1, or 1, 0, or 1, 1, if we use the computing language, right? So two can give you one of, of four possibilities. In quantum, you have all four possibilities at the same time. With three, you can store like eight. With four and so on, you go exponential. With 50, just 50 quantum bits, you can start outperforming classical computers, you need like uh, petabytes of memory to store it. And that's what happened recently in some experiment, we can talk about it later. With 300, you need more atoms than the number of the universe. So the key now, these days, the last five, 10 years, is how to exploit the power and solve useful problems. How to construct those computers and make the hardware made of atoms, electrons, photons, and how to run algorithms on them, how to write software on them. We work in both sides with a bit more uh, focus on the algorithmic side. Give us, give us a sense of the scale, going back to what you said earlier. I, I like the metaphor that in the old days, you know, it was zeros and ones. So it was either this or that. And to your point, what quantum computing is doing is saying, no, it can be both at the same time. How, how do we think about that relative to some of the, the data that's come out on some of the testing? I mean, how fast is it relative to like wasn't there a famous math problem that it solved or it did it did a calculation yeah, where yeah. The, the it was just astronomical how fast yeah. it was yeah yeah i'll give you two specific examples i'll give you one example from from an algorithm perspective that was predicted 20 years ago and it started the field 
it's called the breaking uh, codes algorithm the, the the RSA protocols it sends spines down the down the it sends uh, chills down the spines of many friends in finance and banking actually quantum computers the first thing we think we we'll do they will break the crypto system so we'll come back to that a bit more mm-hmm. um and and the scaling in that case that's called the source algorithm the source algorithm basically tells you how to factorize large numbers factorizing means if i can tell you 15 what's the factors you say three times five it's easy if i give you something like a five or six digit number and i tell you find the factors now it starts getting tough most of the uh, crypto systems we use at the internet now almost everything is based in the in a protocol that has very long numbers basically encoded. Uh, a classical computer to break those, it would take a million um, uh, or a thousand years if you have a supercomputer. A quantum computer has been shown, that was already known 20 years ago, it could do it in five or 10 hours. Mm. So, so uh, this is like, and this is, this is proven, this is mathematics, we, we can show how that works. For that, you need a, a quantum computer with something like, uh, Four, five thousand quantum bits to do that. Um, we don't have that now. We have computers with around fifty to sixty quantum bits, and now we come back to the second problem that was experimentally proved the last, uh, actually last October, by colleagues in Google, and in um, um, the Google Quantum Group, and some university people involved. I was involved some earlier work with them as well. So what they solved there, they used, they built a 53 quantum computing machine based on superconducting quantum uh, bits. Um, and they, they saw that you could actually create this weird probabilities and weird type of uh, series of numbers that the fastest supercomputer would take, if not um, hundreds, definitely um, uh, tens of years to solve and this is kind of uh, it's a milestone in the field it's believed to be uh, equivalent to if not the Wright brothers flight um, I would say pretty close to that I mean we prove we can fly for quite a few minutes actually so this is this is uh, this is amazing basically for the field it's a fast this, the, yeah go ahead this, this sounds like the to your point this reminds me a lot of the work at least emotionally and academically the in regards to the Manhattan project it was one thing Very to similar. talk about you know on the blackboard to talk about the atoms and what what that what it could do it was something else in implementation to say okay we can actually build something so to, cool. so to your point and for our listeners i mean so it sounds like this was theoretical but was proven on the blackboard, for lack of a better description. And then recently, to your point, uh, and I think they, they refer to this as quantum supremacy. So is this, so are we now physically starting to actually build these machines? Is that what Google has done and started to prove out? Yes, we, we exactly. We, we have been building this for years. I mean, I built, or I helped to build one. I'm a theoretical physicist, but I do simulation for the experimentalists, even in my PhD 15, 18 years ago. It just, it took us, 15 years, 20 years, and many Nobel Prizes in, in quantum physics to get the hardware working from one or two or five qubits to these levels of 50 to 100 qubits. It's a technological, it's, a, it's, a, it's, not a, it's just a problem of understanding the technology and making it work. There's no physical law that tells you cannot build a quantum computer. It's just it was very hard. You just 
start to work. Now we're getting, we're learning how to manipulate matter very well at this atomic scale. And now we can put all these proven theorems and all these proven mathematics that works into practice. So the next five years, there's going to be basically an explosion of interest. And, and, and that's why basically we are talking as well. You might have heard quantum a little bit 10 years ago, five years ago, but now it's actually out there. And it's, it's very important to, to get ready, to get quantum ready, especially from where, what sector or what industry you're coming from. Even if it doesn't apply to you, if even if it's not um, straight relevant the next two years or three years, it will be relevant very, very, very soon. So, yeah, go ahead. And you alluded, and with that, you alluded to uh, very quickly a subtle commercial application, and, and also I'd be remiss if I didn't say a commercial concern, but I've heard a lot of people say that quantum computing makes the blockchain obsolete. So, it, I mean, what what... What are some of the assumptions now, i.e. cryptography, yeah. blockchain? Are, are these things going to be disrupted or just completely obliterated by quantum computing? I mean, it, and, does, and by default, does, or does it have to go to a next level as a function of quantum computing? I would say the second is the next level in the sense that blockchain still operates on the basis of classical computing. You know, to mine, to mine uh, coins is a classical process. It takes, it takes some time. But quantum comes basically, especially not so much on the You cannot use a quantum computer at the moment. We don't know exactly how to do it to mine coins and do it faster. But we know how to hack the keys and how to hack the signatures. So mm -hmm. if a quantum computer comes with a few thousand qubits, which is uh, soon, we are around 100, 200 now, um, we're able to hack this. Because it's the, 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 the identity, the signatures in, in, in blockchain technology is still uh, based in classical cryptography. It's based in factorizing large numbers in, in, in this, in this uh, protocols I mentioned earlier. That um, it's called RSA protocol. Every time we use your credit, our credit card, every time we book something online, our pins, our, our, our numbers are encoded as factors of a very large number, to put it very roughly. Yeah. So if the number is very, very big, if it's small, like 15, 20, you can find it easy. But if it's very big, it takes you exponentially long time to break it. The quantum computer does that polynomially, does it much faster. So somewhere it takes 10,000 years, so it's safe, can do it in a few minutes. So that will apply everywhere. So blockchain basically won't, won't, won't work if, if that's there. It won't be secure. Won't, yeah. but, but quantum gives you the, the solution as well. There's quantum cryptography. And there are quantum-based security protocols that are based on the laws of physics now and not on, 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 on large numbers that are, in principle, unbreakable. You cannot, because you cannot disturb the message. It's, it's, it's quantumly safe. And this is something that is very, very advanced these days. We also, we have quite a strong uh, um, uh, presence in that uh, as well, on top of algorithms and computing in our center. And these are devices that you can actually more or less even buy this now. They're slightly more advanced in terms of technology than quantum computers, cryptographic systems. Quite a few banks and in, in financial institutions have shown a lot of interest, and some of them have installed this kind of uh, technology or exploring it in their, in their um, you know, places. Let me, let me ask you, let's, let's shift gears slightly because there's been regrettably a lot of discussion as of late regarding U.S.-China relations 
and and you know a lot of militant talk and a lot of recent press now saying that that it's the end of empire for the United States relative to China and you know China's ascendant um it, using that kind of melancholy backdrop i want to ask you a question there, there was a point made a while back uh i believe it was by harari the the author where he said that we're now entering the next phase of dominance and supremacy where where post world war 2 it, it was a function of who had the bomb, who who had the intellectual capability to design and implement a, an atomic weapon. And and again, I know I'm saying something you already know, but initially it was the U.S. and the Soviet Union, and then it spread to maybe the G7 nations uh, in general. But the idea was that that IP was kept away from the rest of the world. So there were these great powers that had this technology. Let, let's go to the next step. And, and talk about quantum computing, because this is where Harari was saying that this is the next area of dominance. Let's assume for a second that the U.S. and China now have this capability. How, how easy is it, would it be for another sovereign to reverse engineer this technology? In other words, is this something unlike nuclear weapons where a country could say, no, we, we are dominant in quantum, we we have the ability to dedicate resources at this. And to Harari's point, he, he was saying that in an AI world, once that supremacy is established, no one will 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 be able to catch up. Is that is are we looking at the same paradigm with quantum computing? Is this a function where this might only be a race between two or three sovereign nations and then the rest of the world is just, for lack of a better term, out of luck in terms of their ability to do this? Yeah. Uh, good question. Uh, I would like not to be that case. You know, I'm an academic. I learn to share and collaborate freely. Um, I've I worked in different countries. Uh, but as you say, history has taught us differently. And I'm afraid it's getting there. I mean, we're not fully there yet. I don't feel that much, how to say, in my everyday operation. Um, but I've seen signs. Let me Let me put it this way, that Certain things we, um, and definitely with Chinese colleagues, the last few years, the last couple of years, especially, it's it's it's, it's getting there, and this technology will be proprietary. It's as soon as um, you know we're hitting these milestones these days, and there are very you know huge applications in security, in cryptography, um, in, in 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 finance as well. We didn't talk much, but later, in, in you know doing um, much better risk analysis or, or, or trading and uh, finding opportunities in the market much faster and much more efficient. All this, of course, is extremely um, uh, relevant in these geopolitical games. Um, we, as scientists, are trying to keep it open uh, as much as possible. I don't know how long that will last. Um, I think it's very important to keep it open because science progresses this way. But uh, definitely, uh, okay, COVID-19 has put all these things a little bit into different perspective and maybe there is a positive side of that. Although I'm not very hopeful, I have to say that uh, very soon it will be very hard unless you are in the game or you have you built some infrastructure. And most important here is not so much about the money in our field and in the resources about the people. You have to have 
quantum educated people, you have to have people that understand the inner details about this 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 field, which is not trivial. I mean, it's, it's it takes some time to get in, and there's a, there's a, there's a lot of effort also here in Singapore to educate and train quantum physicists, quantum engineers, quantum programmers in this direction. Um, and that's I think the race will be meant mostly in that direction. It's happening already. I mean, the, the the packages and offers for quantum scientists coming from China are comparably not better, actually, than what's happening in the West. So there's a lot of influx, a lot of people movement, uh, especially pre-COVID. Lots of colleagues were considering going there. Uh, and it's something that has to, the Western world has to take take into account. I mean, this is where we have to retain and train more people and, and you know, um, uh, do the best we can in that direction. So it really is then an issue of human capital. Yeah. That That's the key resource. Yes, yes. in our case, this is it because these this machines are coming out. Uh, the, it's not, it's, it's not an, just a purely academic discipline anymore. As, as it was in you know 20 years ago when I was a graduate student and and you know I have my own team here we are actually 200 people in the quantum center uh, I run one of the teams there uh, it's just much more difficult to get people and good people on board and much the you know the salaries and the resources compared to not only what China does, but a lot of big private companies as well. Now we have to compete with Google, with IBM, with Tencent, with um, Alibaba has a quantum laboratory recently. They were looking for for uh, people to, to get there. And, you know, uh, everybody in, in the whole hierarchy from professors like me all the way down to graduate students uh, have been, uh, they have much more options to go and work for. So this is, this is and there are not enough people. So this is this is a big thing. And like climate change, is there a tipping point here where where you would say, uh, obviously Singapore is 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 very very focused on the idea. The United States is focused on it. China is focused on it. Is there a tipping point in quantum where if you aren't involved, then you just aren't going to be involved? I mean, is there is there a point where nations have to start looking at this? Otherwise, it's too late. Most nations have have uh, have some sort of quantum program. This is the last few years. I'm involved in many different advisory, scientific advisory boards in different countries, including my own country, Greece. We're trying to make a national program there. There's a massive European quantum program launched two years ago, a few billion, a couple of billion euros. Uh, uh, President Trump signed the quantum U.S. quantum initiative um, last year to kind of focus on quantum. Um, I mean, U.K., U.S., and certain parts of Europe had programs already for 20, 30 years ago. Smaller countries are entering now. Here in Southeast Asia, there's quite a bit of interest. Some of my students come from this area, so um, I help them to go back to their countries and try to do something there, like in Thailand and Vietnam and so on. It won't be easy. I mean, you can, you, but you know, better late than never. Um, so the earlier you go in, the more uh, uh, knowledge and, and leverage we will have what's going on. Of course, deep down, when you come to the real technology, if if there's border kind of control in, in, in components that you have to kind of get to build your devices, or if there are 
if there are regulations in accessing devices, some of these devices at the moment are on the cloud. Actually, we have kind of prototype quantum computers. IBM has put some on the cloud, very small ones, a few qubits, but you know, it's enough to experiment and go and play and run some basic algorithms and see how it works, which is important in this building up capability um, era. They cannot really solve any 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 large problems yet. I have to kind of make a clear clear thing here. This we, there is no massive quantum computer out there now, at least uh, that you can access and the, the stuff that I can talk about, but uh, it's coming. So to if there are some you know geopolitical reasons that you you are not allowed to access those things or you can allow to to to, build, to buy components to build one, then of course you're gonna stay out of the game and then that's it. Then it's gonna be a big issue. Well, Dimitri, we could have easily kept you here for another hour. So I, again, this is one of the regrettable things about our short format is that uh, just as things get heated up, we we, we have to wrap it up. So sure. again, this has been a phenomenal conversation and an introduction for our listeners to quantum computing. And I, I have one selfish ask. I, I hope, would we be able to extend you an invitation to come back again? Sure, I'll be great. And we could talk about quantum finance as well. That's the only thing we skipped. Uh, but it's great as a first thing. There's, uh, let me just say this for, for at least for your financial sure. audience that there is a lot of use cases in finance, especially in optimization, trading trajectories, credit scoring, transaction settlements. There's a lot of recent works and collaborations between different all the big banks and Goldman Sachs as a as a quantum team now and and uh, J.P. Morgan and all these guys. With some of these guys, we are collaborating down to you know down to the gritty details and writing algorithms for for, for specific problems in finance and uh, some of them have also access to hardware so it's it's very exciting in that area as well and um, yeah so that's that's all from my side thanks uh, i don't want to overrun the time but i'm definitely interested to talk again anytime just uh, let me know no worries and 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 again we uh it's funny. Sometimes people say between the DOD and Wall Street, there's almost no distinction. So uh, yep. I appreciate it. It's going to be fun to talk about the use cases on either side. And and again, as you know, we've, we've been increasing our focus on uh, logistics and AI data and supply chains. So inevitably, we're, we're going to be talking about this a lot more. So again, Dimitri, thank you for today. Uh, best wishes to you and your family in a in this uh, COVID-19 world. I'll look forward to seeing you again face-to-face, hopefully in two to three weeks once we get out of lockdown. And for our listeners, thank you again for tuning in to this week's edition of Unhedged. Be safe, be well, and we'll talk to you again next week. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.